I'm Daniel Levine, and this is the Bio Report. Investment in biomedical research in the United States is declining at a time when other countries have been increasing their spending. While this is raising concerns about threats this poses to the nation's economic competitiveness, a new study in the Journal of the American Medical Association suggests new strategies will be necessary to fund research and development if the clinical value of past investments and opportunities to improve care are to be fully realized. We spoke to study co-author Ray Dorsey, professor of neurology and co-director of the Center for Human Experimental Therapeutics at the University of Rochester Medical Center, about the findings, what strategies can be employed to reverse the trend, and why new investment alone is not the answer. Ray, thanks for joining us. Danny, pleasure to be here. You recently co-authored a study in the Journal of the American Medical Association that provides an updated look at U.S. spending in biomedical research and its shifting position relative to investments being made in other nations. Let's start with the numbers themselves. What are you seeing that suggests a, a cause for concern? Is it slowing growth, drops in real spending? Can, can you offer some perspective? Sure. As most of you, your listeners know, um, from about 1993 to about 2003, we had a decade of doubling in terms of biomedical research funding. And that doubling came not only from public sources like the NIH, but from pharmaceutical firms, from biotechnology firms, much of that data actually coming from the Burrell Report. But after that decade of doubling, we've seen actually a decade of near decline in uh, funding for biomedical research when you adjust for inflation. Uh, so just to give you, a, you and your listeners a sense, uh, Growth averaged, you know, six percent per year for funding R and D funding from 1994 to 2004, but declined to less than one percent per year from two, uh, 2004 to 2012. In the last few years, you exclude uh, funding um, from the uh, ARRA Act, um, actually declined in terms of real terms. Well, there are many pieces of play here. There's government investment and industry investment, private sector investment, philanthropy. Are we seeing concerns across the board or in one area more than another? We're seeing this across both public and private uh, uh, support. So the biggest uh, funder of biomedical research in the United States is industries, which counts from 50 to 60 percent of uh, funding for biomedical research. And that's actually increases proportion uh, over the last 20 years from 46 percent to 58 percent. And that's largely driven by a decline in in real terms in funding from the NIH over the last uh, five years. Uh, so you're seeing public support waning even more so uh, than uh, private support. Uh, okay. Philanthropy as a whole is still too small to make a, a huge difference, but we expect that over time that, that will increase. What's driving these trends? Is it the focus on austerity, a, a lack of return on past investment? Do, do we as a society just undervalue the benefits of science and research? Um, that's hard. So from the industry standpoint, we've seen a, a long-standing decline in the productivity of the life sciences industry. 
the amount of dollars required to produce one new drug or one new uh, device has been increasing uh, over time. So the opposite of Moore's law or Moore's observation, which uh, in this case we're seeing increasing amount of cost to produce the same output. On the public sector, um, I think austerity is probably the biggest reason we've seen a rapid uh, uh, plateauing and a little bit decline in funding for, for support for the NIH. It's clear, though, that funding for biomedical research or that advances from biomedical research have huge advances. Uh, the Global Burden of Disease study just showed that over the last two decades, we've had a four-year uh, four increase in life expectancy in the United States. It was just remarkable that over 20 years, you can increase life expectancy by four years. And, you know, we're seeing huge advances, you know, in cancer and uh, other areas that uh, suggest that we're going to be able to continue those trends. Uh, the, they can't continue without funds. At the same time, your numbers show uh, in terms of the private sector, the industry investment, there, there's been a shift away from, from early stage to late stage. What, what's the consequence of that? Uh, yeah, so um, uh, large pharmaceutical firms have moved rapidly from supporting uh, research across preclinical, uh, early stage clinical, and late stage clinical to predominantly late stage uh, clinical research. Uh, research, especially around phase three and a little bit of uh, phase four uh, studies. And what that really has left is a vacuum of funding around early stage uh, clinical investigation, stage one and stage two. And this has fallen onto the hands of very small biotechnology firms, many of whom have no appreciable uh, revenue, and many of whom are quite small. So we as a society are increasingly uh, dependent on the efforts of very small companies to develop uh, promising leads or promising drugs for big pharma to take forward. At the same time, we're seeing rising economies increase their investment in biomedical research as the U.S. is declining as a share of total investment and in other measures such as publications and, and patents. To some extent, it shouldn't be surprising to see these other countries stepping up their investment, but is there a threat here to American economic competitiveness, and, and should we be concerned about that? Well, clearly that uh, United, the, the headline that many paper articles wrote was the United States' position of biomedical leadership is slipping. So the data suggests that um, from 2004 to 2012, the proportion of U.S., a portion of global R&D funding that came from the U.S. declined from 57% to 44%. And so while the U.S.'s investment in uh, biomedical research has been declining, uh, other countries have not experienced uh, this. They've actually experienced the opposite, an increasing amount of uh, biomedical research funding. A lot of that's coming from Asia, uh, where their funding uh, tripled from $2.6 billion to $9.7 billion over eight years. And while that's still a small amount compared to the United States, it's $117 billion. I think we're seeing these developing econ economies invest more. And China's case, invests a lot of money in people in terms of training the next generation of investigators. Well, one other area you discuss, which I think is often overlooked, is a lack of investment in improving delivery of healthcare services, something that's critical as we seek to contain healthcare costs while improving quality. Why do we tend to underinvest in this area, and what can be done to change that? Yeah, so, uh, you know, we spent about $2.5, trillion on uh, healthcare in the United States, and most, 90% of that goes to healthcare delivery. And against that, two point, you know, say $2.5 trillion, we spent $5 billion 
on research aimed at improving the way we deliver uh, health care. And if you can look at cross industries, health insurers and healthcare uh, providers rank last or near the last across all industries in the retail finance in terms of R&D investment. Um, I think the challenge there is the, the economic model is a little bit less clear. Pharmaceutical companies invest R&D money. They can develop a new drug and they get a return on that investment, you know, maybe a billion-dollar drug. If you're a health insurer, if you're a health care provider, you invest and, you know, improving the way healthcare is delivered, you might actually cost yourself money, uh, given the, uh, some of the counterproductive incentives we have in the healthcare industry. Um, I don't have great uh, solutions to that. You know, aligning economic incentives, reimbursement incentives with the provision of uh, higher quality and lower cost care and increasing access to care would certainly be a good way to start. Well, one of the things you discuss is the need for new sources of funding and, and suggest some ways to stimulate that. I'm Wondering if you could walk us through some of those ideas and explain how they would work. This includes foreign capital repatriation, biomedical research bonds, research innovation trust, and tax checkoffs. Yeah, so um, you know, one of the challenges that we're seeing in the pharmaceutical world uh, is that a large proportion of multinational uh, companies have a large amount of cash uh, in their um, overseas um, divisions. And the question is, you know, how can they bring that uh, cash back into the United States? And right now we're seeing uh, sophisticated mergers and acquisitions aimed at uh, accessing that cash, which really isn't, and these acquisitions aren't necessarily aimed at uh, strategic reasons other than to access cash. So one potential solution is to provide financial incentives, uh, tax incentives for uh, multinational companies to invest monies overseas that are residing overseas and invest them in uh, R&D in the United States or elsewhere. Uh, we're seeing that we've had an underfunding of biomedical research for the last decade, so we've proposed providing a tax incentive to uh, take advantage of uh, capital that firms have and providing them a financial reason, additional financial reason to use that uh, to advance new discoveries. And how about the the idea of a biomedical research bonds or a research innovation trust? Uh, are we seeing these being used anywhere? Um, so those are a, a little bit less well developed in the United States. You know, we give bonds to uh, help facilitate the construction of uh, sports complexes. So why don't we give bonds financial incentives to fund the development of research institutes aimed at improving the health of uh, Americans and individuals around the world? Those have been less well established uh, in the United States, um, but they're beginning to see more discussion, at least, of using these novel financial mechanisms to increase research funds. So you you alluded to this earlier in your discussion of declining productivity in, in R&D, but you do suggest it's not just a matter of directing investment, but making the most of that investment by increasing productivity. Why are we facing declining productivity, and how can that be addressed? So if you look at where uh, funding for um, drug development costs are rising the most is in the clinical development. And the number one driver of the rising cost of uh, developing a drug is time. And so this research comes from DeMossi, Hansen, and colleagues who uh, you know, put out reports. This is over at the Tufts Center for the Study of Drug Development. Exactly. And what we're seeing is that uh, 50% of the cost of uh, developing a drug is not cash outlays, but the time it takes to develop drugs. And lots of people point to the FDA for uh, as a reason for taking long time to review drugs. But, you know, really what's hidden is that there are lots of uh, delays in 
um, conduct of clinical trials. Uh, multi-site IRB reviews can actually take longer than the FDA can. Uh, the F- they can take longer to review a review and approve a protocol than the FDA can to review and approve a drug a, a new drug application. So I think we need to look very critically at what's taking uh, what's causing the source of delays for developing drugs. And I think in many cases, not necessarily the FDA, although that might be a small part of it, but for some of these other regulatory um, barriers that add little value uh, to the system. Well, ultimately, I'd argue a failure of investment is a failure of policy. The U.S. does not have a long-term strategy for research investment, as many of our rising competitors do. What's the hope that we'll see such a strategy develop, particularly at a time when there seems to be growing antagonism towards science and in investing in science with the new Congress? I'm not so sure that uh, I'm not a politician and I'm not in D.C., but I'm not sure if there's antagonism uh, towards uh, biomedical research funding. You know, uh, you're having new cancer drugs come out here that are uh, providing, you know, treatments to people with metastatic melanoma, you know, previously uh, just unfathomable, uh, four-year increase in life expectancy over 20 years. I mean, these things uh, matter to politicians because they, they like to live longer, and I'm sure they'd like their uh, family to live longer. I think we are in a less austere financial environment. I think the U.S. debt went from uh, $2.5 trillion to uh, half a trillion dollars uh, over the last few years. So we're still at a deficit, but not as great of a deficit as we've had in the past. Uh, you know, I think in general, funding for biomedical research is something that uh, enjoys bipartisan uh, support. So I think a lot, and the, the economy as a whole is doing better. So I think some, mac- some of the macroeconomic forces are suggesting we're at a time where we could actually revisit our commitment to biomedical research funding and actually uh, put an end to this decade of decline. Ray Dorsey, Professor of Neurology and Co-Director of the Center for Human Experimental Therapeutics at the University of Rochester Medical Center and co-author of The Anatomy of Medical Research, U.S. and International Comparisons in the January 13th issue of JAMA. Ray, thanks so much for your time. My pleasure, Danny. A few housekeeping notes. On our sister podcast, Rarecast, you can hear the compelling story of how a potential drug to treat a rare disease was driven by patients, advanced to the clinic by the National Institutes of Health, and licensed by a new company formed out of an orphan drug accelerator. Then tune in January 30th to hear Bill Elder Jr., a cystic fibrosis patient and guest of First Lady Michelle Obama at this year's State of the Union address as a living, breathing example of the benefits of precision medicine as the president readies to unveil his precision medicine initiative. Thanks for listening. The Bio Report is a production of the Levine Media Group. To automatically download this podcast each week, subscribe to our RSS feed or through iTunes or other podcast manager. To join our mailing list, go to levinemediagroup.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to drop us a line or are interested in sponsoring this podcast, send an email to danny at levinemediagroup.com. Special thanks to Jonah Levine, who composed our theme music, and the Jonah Levine Collective, which performs it.